um, over a little while now as we go through this series that's called Seven Words to the Church Today. As we go through this series, we're going to be um, primarily looking at the first three chapters of the, uh, of the book of Revelation. This book of Revelation that some of you will be uh, familiar with was written by a guy called John. It's usually been accredited to uh, John the Apostle. Many of us would uh, would know that it uh, would think at least that it's been written by John the Apostle. And most of the reason that it's been accredited to John the Apostle is because at the very beginning of the book, it says that it's written by John, uh, and John was exiled to Patmos. And we find out that throughout this book, that this writer was also um, exiled to uh, exiled to Patmos, which is uh, an island just off uh, off the coast of of Turkey. Um, really, we don't actually know exactly who, who wrote the book. Oh, I think it was written by, uh, by, John, the, by John the Apostle, um, and it may have just been transcribed by, uh, by someone as he communicated uh, a vision that he saw. Um, and that is what Revelation is. Revelation, the whole book, is a, uh, is a vision that John was given as he was exiled to Patmos um, by God of things that were happening in the supernatural realm. He is seeing what is happening in the, in the spiritual, supernatural realm, and then he is trying to communicate in natural, physical terms what he is being able to, uh, to see. Really, what we see throughout the book of Revelation is that God is pulling back the curtain of what is happening in the spiritual realm, and he has a vision or revelation of supernatural things. And the way I picture Revelation being written is John has this, uh, this vision and is seeing these things as he's exiled there on this island, and he's just trying to scribble down as fast as he can, here's some of the things I'm seeing, here's some of the, the pictures and language that was uh, the language of, uh, of what I'm seeing, uh, trying to write it down really, really fast. <clears throat> as he goes uh, on throughout this book, we see that it's not just uh, a broad book that is written to um, the whole church at the time uh, that this book was written, but it's specifically written to seven different churches uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the world of that time. Now, when we speak about church, we're not speaking about a building at all when we say that word, the, uh, the seven churches of the book of Revelation. What we're talking about is a group of people who were brought together by God and were meeting together as God's people. And all seven of these churches, what we see throughout, uh, particularly chapters two and three, they all have different strengths and weaknesses and different areas that God is calling them to grow in their faith. And it's my hope that as we go through this series that we might be encouraged by certain things that we see that is encouraged uh, throughout these uh, seven churches, but we might also be made aware of some of the areas that we might be able to grow as we look at these seven, uh, seven different churches. But Revelation, it doesn't start off with the seven churches, although it's referenced in chapter one. John is trying to communicate something that is even more important than the messages to the seven churches. There is something else that he wants to do to be able to set up this letter and center everyone's attention before uh, he launches into what was addressed to these seven churches. And this 
chapter that we're going to be reading today, which is Revelation 1, helps set up the whole rest of the book. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen as well. We're just going to be looking at Revelation 1 throughout our time today. We're going to be going through the whole chapter, racing through it, and, uh, and referencing different parts as we look at the big message of what God is trying to say through this first chapter. So in Revelation 1, it says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was, uh, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Just beautiful language we see here that's being set up in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation, describing this uh, this introduction to, uh, to what John had been, been seeing. 
Now, reading through the book of Revelation takes a little bit of getting used to. If you have uh, been journeying with Jesus for a while and you have read any of the book of Revelation, it can be pretty confusing, even as we start off in chapters like this in chapter 1. And trust me, it gets even more full-on as you go throughout the book. And it, is really, uh, it can be a really hard book to, to understand. And the reason for this is because of the genre that it's written in. We are probably familiar with, uh, with genres um, like what Paul writes through his epistles, where he writes with clarity and statements, and, uh, and it can be quite easy for us to, to understand. He, we can even make clear lists out of things. We are pretty familiar with uh, reading history throughout uh, throughout Scripture, um, all the four gospel accounts, we understand these are just historical narratives of what happens, but the book of Revelation is very different to that, because we don't see lists and, uh, and facts and, uh, and statements throughout this. What we see more are, are pictures and visions and stories and symbolism that John is trying to use to be able to communicate the vision that he had. The symbolism that he uses throughout this book as well is quite important for, uh, for us to, to be aware of because the symbolism that is used throughout this book um, may not be familiar to us because we are not Christians living 2,000 years ago. The symbolism that is used throughout this book would have been um, fairly well understood by the readers because the symbolism that's used is often referring to things in the Old Testament. So, for example, in this very first chapter, we see that there is a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, and this, once again, is symbolism referencing back to, uh, to the Word of God, which was often represented by a sword in the Old Testament. And this happens all throughout the book of Revelation, different symbols being used to communicate a point. So to understand these symbols, it's important not just to know this book, but to know all of Scripture, because it's only when we know that that we gain clarity to what is written throughout this, uh, the rest of this book. This is how Revelation needs to be read. And yet, even though it is written with visions and pictures and stories throughout uh, throughout this book, there are still very, very clear lessons that we are able to draw from as we read through this, including what we have just read in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, we see what the whole point of the book of Revelation is all about. Why does Revelation exist? What's the point? And I'm actually going to ask you right now, Take about 30 seconds, turn to your neighbour right now and tell them what you think the point of Revelation is. If you don't know what the point is, that's fine. Just say, I don't know. But take 30 seconds right now and discuss with your neighbour what do you think the point of Revelation is. If you're joining with us online, you go ahead and do that as well.
most of you seem to be pretty done in your discussion of what you think it's all about. Now, usually this is the point where I would say, call out your answers. I'm not doing that this morning because the whole point of my sermon is what is the point of the book of Revelation, especially of what's communicated here in the, uh, in the first chapter. Now, for many of us, we would associate the book of Revelation with an area of theology which is called eschatology, which is end times theology. What, is, what, are, what are things going to look like at the end of all things? And a huge portion of the book of Revelation is taken up discussing this. There is also a huge amount of Christian thinking that is spent um, trying to understand what this is going to look like. So you may have heard these weird, fancy theological terms like premillennialism or premillennial dispensationalism or amillennialism or postmillennialism or millennial millennialism. There's just all these different millennialisms that come and are talked about through, uh, as a result of this book of Revelation. They are not just spoken about by people, but they are hotly debated. This is a, uh, a quite a controversial book, and part of the reason for that is because of the symbolism that is used. People understanding the symbolism uh, differently throughout this, this book. And sometimes, I must admit, when I've heard some of the different arguments that happen about the book of Revelation, I find them a little bit silly. There are many church arguments that can end up becoming uh, a little bit silly, and I decided this week to have a look at some of them. What are some of the things that different churches have decided to argue about? I've got a few here. I saw one church that had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship, leader's, a worship pastor's beard. So, Dave, yours is a good length at the moment, just a little one right there. There was a church that had an argument and a members meeting vote to decide if a clock in the worship centre should be removed. There was a church that had a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three or four drawers. There was a petition, I like this one because all our, well, a lot of our male staff we'd be a bit ruined here. Um, there was a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. Alex, you're in trouble, brother. <laughs> there was a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave the 10 cents to settle the issue. There was a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had changed the brand of grape juice that they had been using. There was an argument on whether the church should, should allow deviled eggs at the church because of the name deviled eggs. I'd be more horrified about having deviled eggs because I just think they taste gross. And the final one, this one was probably my favourite. Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. And this resulted in a major fight and a split of the church over a vacuum cleaner. There are silly arguments that can happen in churches. Some of you may have been involved in, in some of them before. Um, and there are, there are things that can get... Uh, cause us to be distracted from what the main point is. 
And if I'm honest, I feel like that often happens with the book of Revelation. We can often get really distracted from what the main point of the book is because we will have arguments with one another and debates with one another in silly ways. And that can mean that we miss the point of what it is all about. Now, although trying to understand the symbolism of the book of Revelation and understanding what end times will look like, although that is important and it's spoken about more in Revelation than anywhere else, the point of Revelation is not to try and work out a strict series of events that will happen towards the end times. The point of the book of Revelation is simply this. It is Jesus. The point of Revelation is Jesus. That is the center, the point of the whole book where it starts. And that is what we see in the first chapter. This first chapter is designed to set up the whole rest of the book, and it gives context to the rest of the book, and it points explicitly again and again and again to Jesus. It points over again and acknowledges who, uh, who Jesus is. Now, for the readers, this would have been incredible, this image of Jesus that we are able to see through this first chapter, because they would have heard stories about who Jesus was. They would have heard about this Jewish man who went through Galilee, who was born in Bethlehem and did ministry in the area of Galilee, eventually was crucified and then rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven. And now they are seeing a new picture of Jesus that they haven't seen before. They are seeing who Jesus is now, the heavenly spiritual Jesus. And they are seeing that he is now being honored and glorified above all others, that angels and heavenly beings are singing his praises. And this is how this whole book starts. It starts with Jesus. Later on in chapters 2 and 3, which is what we'll be looking at in the, uh, in the next few weeks as we go through this series, there is uh, are messages that this Jesus has for the seven churches that are addressed here in chapter 1. They're addressed to each church individually. And throughout the rest of the book, there is a message that, um, that is given for all of the churches broadly um, of what is to, to come in the future. The churches that this is addressed to, they are given the option of what their future will look like. They are given the option of choosing either compromise or choosing faithfulness to Jesus. And yet the book starts and centers itself on Jesus. And the point, the picture of how Jesus is painted here is an incredible image of who he is. Because the, one of the ways that he is described is, is the risen Jesus. In verses 17 to 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is what we celebrated just a few weeks ago at Easter. Jesus was dead and now he is alive. And notice how Jesus says that because he has risen from the grave, he now holds the keys to death and Hades. Death no longer has power over anyone who is in Christ because of what Jesus has done through rising from the dead. And when 
uh, yeah, this is uh, this what we see in uh, in just Jesus being presented here as the risen Messiah. Um, this is a fulfilment of what is described often throughout the uh, throughout the New Testament. In other places throughout the New Testament, we see that there is a waiting that is happening for the believers as they wait for the risen Messiah to come again. In Philippians 3.20, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, Titus 2 verse 13, Romans 8.23, 2 Peter 3.12, we see again and again and again that we, the believers, are waiting patiently for the risen Jesus to come again and give life to all of those who are in him. And this is the picture that John is seeing right here, the risen Jesus. He sees the risen Jesus, who is also described as the victorious Jesus. Second half of verse 5 to verse 8, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Right here, yes, he is the risen Jesus, but he is also victorious over all things. He is no longer presented as a man who is walking here and doing ministry on the earth. He is described as the one who is over all other things. And as with the rest of this passage, the ultimate victory that is described here is... Uh, is over sin and death. The point of the victory of Jesus that is shown here is because Jesus was victorious once over the grave, he will be victorious again. So he is the risen, victorious Jesus who is also given the position of king above all others. Verses four to five, the first part of uh, verse five. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is now the King Jesus. I recently was watching a, um, a show, which the title doesn't make me look really great. It's called How to Become a Tyrant. Um, <laughs> You don't need to worry too much. It's on Netflix. Don't worry. I'm not, that's, not my, uh, that's not my goal for the election here on, uh, on Saturday this week. Um, but this book presents a whole heap of different tyrants and dictators who have lived throughout history um, and, uh, and shows how they made their way to becoming a dictator and, uh, and a tyrant. Um, and what I found really interesting as I was watching this, uh, this show um, is there were multiple people who used similar strategies to become a tyrant of a particular nation or of a, of a particular group. And yet something that seemed to happen pretty consistently is that their kingdoms weren't able to hold together. They were elevated to this position of being above all others. And because there was weakness or, or holes in their personality and who they were, they weren't able to keep their kingdom going and most of these kingdoms all crumbled to the ground. They weren't able to sustain this kingdom. 
And it just made me think as, we, as I was reading through this passage about the King Jesus that is so different about any king that has reigned on this earth throughout all of history because through King Jesus, we see a king where his kingdom will never end, it will never fade away. And the point of revelation, the risen victorious King Jesus, it points to this kingdom later on in the book that is to come and is for all of us who are in Christ, that we will one day be under this King Jesus in his kingdom. John's goal here, before he addresses anything to do with the seven churches, or begins to speak about what things will look like in the future, is to, um, is to describe the most amazing sight of what he saw here, which is Jesus himself. The goal of what he's doing is to elevate the image of Jesus that we might have And understand, yes, Jesus was a man who walked here 2,000 years ago and did ministry on the earth. He died and rose again. But there will be a time that he comes again as the risen, victorious King Jesus, making everything right and his kingdom will last forever and ever. We'll be singing his praises and he will be victorious over sin and death forever. This is the image that he is trying to communicate here in this first chapter. And when I see this image of Jesus the risen, victorious king. Probably for myself, the first question that I want to ask is why would Jesus, who is described like this, why is he interested in seven small little churches in in the world 2,000 years ago? Why does he take so much interest in these seven churches? Even for us here today, how could the risen victorious King Jesus care about the church, us, here in Brackenridge? Bringing it more personally, how could this king be interested in me? How could Jesus, if this is who Jesus is, how could he love me? And yet we see spread out through all of this first chapter, through all of these descriptions of who Jesus is, that there is also a way that this Jesus is at work in his people. We see that this Jesus loves his people. Can we just go to the next slide? Thank you so much, Bob. He loves his people. Verse five, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. In verse 6, he empowers his people. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests. Why? To serve his God and Father. He comforts his people. In verse 17, I love this picture that we see here in verse 17, because amidst this picture of who Jesus is, he brings his hand down and he comforts John in the midst of this great vision. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's terrified. (laughs) Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He loves his people, he empowers his people, he comforts his people, and he holds on to his people. In verse 20, 
um, we see him holding on to the lampstands that represent the seven churches. And in the same way he's holding on to these lampstands, he holds on to us here today. The risen victorious King Jesus is still king of the church here today, and he loves the church, he empowers the church, he comforts the church, and he holds the church. The risen victorious King Jesus is still king, primarily over his church. And the point of this book, as I've said many times already, it's not to fill our heads with more knowledge of um, just trying to understand some, some facts of what things will, will look like in the, in the future, although that is important. The point of why this has been written is to elevate our understanding of who King Jesus is, the victorious King. And then for us to be reassured that amidst his power and his greatness, he still has a plan for his people. He still has a plan for the church. He is still at work in the church and there is a wonderful future awaiting us one day when we see him as he really is. Let me pray. Risen, victorious King Jesus, we acknowledge you as who you really are. We worship you and praise you as you really are. And we thank you that even amongst your grandeur and power and might, that you are still interested in us here today and that you have a great plan for us who are part of the, the church. You have a plan for us and you are wanting to work through us and in us to make us more like Jesus. And we do ask that as we grow together, that we will keep the central focus, the central focus, which is Jesus. We won't be distracted one way or the other, but we will keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, for anyone today who might have a, a sense that you are distant or you are powerful or great, but you are not interested in us, would you just assure them and remind them that you are a God who amongst your power and might and, and grandeur, you are still the God who also loves the church, who empowers the church, who comforts the church and you hold the church. You do that for us broadly and you do that for every single one of us individually. So we give you praise and we give you honour, our King, in your name. Amen.